Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us now, Dr. Ward McCarthy, Chief Economist for Jeffries and Matt Bosler, Bloomberg Fed reporter. Uh, Dr. McCarthy, want to start with you. So how does Jay Powell deal with this jobs report? Well, he has to be delighted with this. Uh, the Fed has a dual mandate, um, one of which is maximum employment, the other which is stable inflation near 2%. And it's quite clear the Fed keeps hitting home runs as far as the employment numbers are concerned because the labor market went out of 2018 like a lion. And I think that he'll be happy to point that out. He'll be happy to point to the fact that wage growth continues to gradually accelerate. And so he can declare victory on that front. Matt Bosler, we are awaiting comments from a variety of Federal Reserve experts. One of them, of course, the current Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell. Also, his immediate predecessors, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke, they're scheduled to speak today at the uh, Atlanta Fed's American Economic Association's annual meeting. Do you expect them to reference today's jobs report? Well, I can't wait to see what he says, because like we've been talking about, this is an amazing jobs report. It pushes the Fed in the direction of what they've been doing for the last several years, which is tightening in response to a strong labor market that should eventually generate inflationary pressure. This is what their models are telling them to do. Yet at the same time, obviously, they have this huge problem in financial markets that they also have to address. And so which message do we hear? How does he balance those two things? Well, and I actually want to push back uh, Dr. Ward on what you, uh, Dr. Ward McCarthy on what you just said, which is that he's got to be thrilled about this jobs report. Doesn't this make his job a whole lot more difficult? Because if he continues raising interest rates uh, right now, the market is implying that longer term, term growth will slow down as a result. Well, I think that right now the more important of the dual mandate objectives is going to be inflation because that's headed below target. And as a consequence, I think that there's going to be a, a reprieve of several months before the Fed resumes our, uh, hiking rates. So um, 
I do not think this poses a problem for the Fed. The Fed is uh, very happy to have the economy continue to grow. And especially, I think they're probably happy to see the labor force starting to uh, in, increase again as well. Uh, but I do, do not think this increases pressure on the Fed to raise rates anytime soon for the simple reason that inflation is headed in the opposite direction of what they want it to. And it will continue to be weak so long as the trade war yeah. uh, continues to suppress commodities. So square with me the idea that we have, uh, Dr. McCarthy, a really strong economy that cannot handle an additional 25 basis point rate hike. Well, I think the economy can handle another 25 basis point rate hike. In fact, I think the economy can handle a number of more rate hikes. But again, the Fed has a dual mandate um, that is what drives their policy decisions. Uh, they're hitting on all cylinders on the labor side, uh, but they're starting to fall behind as far as the inflation side is concerned. So uh, given that their their decisions on policy are based on both inflation and the labor markets, uh, I think we can expect that they will pause here for a period of time. Matt, a lot has changed since December the 19th, hasn't it? Explain. Well, certainly in financial markets, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, changes. And so um, this is it really comes back to this interesting question of what is Jay Powell going to say? Because if it's the case that they do see inflation slowing materially, as Dr. McCarthy points out, at a time when they still have very strong labor market data, they're going to need to start to communicate a more fundamental shift in their strategy, in the approach that they've been taking over the last several years, because to date, what this type of labor market data has meant has meant higher interest rates. And so if that is starting to change now, um, it, it's almost like the, the markets have sort of forced the Fed's hand uh, in terms of, you know, the strategy that they're pursuing. And so that would be, you know, a huge development. So I know we have to let you run, Matt Bosler. I know you've got a lot going on today. Matt Bosler of Bloomberg News. Uh, Dr. Ward McCarthy, you're staying with us. Dr. McCarthy, I do want to get your view on the balance sheet because on one hand, uh, perhaps the Fed can afford to raise interest rates by another quarter of a percentage point. But what about the balance sheet roll-off? Can it afford to allow it to be on autopilot to $2.5 from $4 trillion where it is today? Well, the point is we don't know what they uh, what the final objective is as far as what the Fed thinks the normalized size of the balance sheet should be. Uh, so, so far, it is on automatic pilot, uh, and the balance sheet is on schedule to shrink by somewhere between $550 billion and $600 billion over the course of 2019. Uh, what we do not know is when they intend to stop, and I think that the uh, normalized size of the balance sheet is going to become one of the more important uh, policy issues and topics as this year unfolds. And there's also not just a size issue, there's a compositional issue. Prior to the crisis, the Fed owned only treasuries. And even with the roll-offs that are underway, uh, should they continue for another couple of years, you still would have uh, a trillion or so mortgages on the balance sheet. Um, so I think at some point as well, the going to have to discuss how to get the mortgages off the balance sheet. Uh, and I think eventually what they'll do is start to, once they get the size that they want, they will start rolling some of the mortgage proceeds into bills so that they can also get bills back on their balance sheet as well, because currently they have none. And prior to the crisis, about 30% of the balance sheet was treasury bills.
Ward McCarthy, there are four new voting members on the FOMC. You've got James Bullard in St. Louis, Esther George from Kansas City, Charles Evans, Chicago, and Eric Rosengren, Boston. Do you believe that they are going to vote for a pause in interest rate increases? Uh, Well, they take it meeting to meeting. So they're not going to, at any one meeting, say, oh, we're not going to raise rates for the next three or four meetings. But what they will be doing, and they've told us they're going to do, is to become increasingly data dependent as the Fed funds rate works further into their estimate of neutrality. Uh, And the inflation numbers, at least over the next two to three months, are going to be substantially weaker uh, than we've seen from for most of 2018 and substantially weaker than I think they're going to want to see. So as a consequence, I think they will simply defer uh, from their next rate hike so long as inflation remains weak, which I expect it to, um, so long as the trade war continues. Dr. Ward McCarthy, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, We really appreciate your insights. Dr. Ward McCarthy, chief economist for Jeffries, talking about both the jobs number that we got earlier as well as what the Fed will do with them. Uh, Let's get the opinion of Jason Shanker, president of Prestige Economics and chairman of the Futurist Institute, uh, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist joining us now. Jason, what was your big takeaway from uh, from this uh, panel? Well, you know, I I was uh, this didn't come at a better time, really, because DoveFest 2019, which is what this should be called, uh, you know, I think is. Uh, you know, well needed at a time where there's a lot of risk and uncertainty and concern about the fact that the Fed is tightening rates and still has these only three week old, relatively hawkish set of forecasts for what they're going to do at a time that financial markets have been very, very concerned about, you know, what's going to happen next. And I think that as we look, there is still a concern. There are risks for the year for the year ahead. And I think there was, you know, Powell had mentioned that, but is this going to be like 2016? You know, I think there are risks that we see contractions in business investment this year, but it's the consumer that's going to be strong. That's going to be really critical. Yellen pointed out that's you know, two thirds plus of the economy. And after today's jobs number, you know, you have to be optimistic that we're going to get some growth this year, even if it's slower than last year. Uh, because the consumer, the job market is in a really good place. Jason Schenker, uh, while the um, <clears throat> excuse me, while the panel was going on, the dollar weakening against uh, all major currencies, against the euro one fourteen and the pound sterling one twenty seven twenty at the Japanese yen level one oh eight twenty five, and Canadian dollar really moving higher against the U.S. dollar one thirty four. Do you believe that the comments about the balance sheet will have lasting effects on the movement of the U.S. dollar? Yeah, so I think there's two things here. I think one is our opinion has been that the Fed's overly hawkish. Last year, uh, October 2017, we expected four rate hikes for 2018, and and we didn't see any for 2019 at that time. Even now, we see one at most in Q1, if any, because there's actually likely to be a base effect pushing inflation lower in the year ahead. So even if wage inflation remains relatively strong, we think that lower oil prices year-on-year could dampen some of the inflationary pressures and reduce the need for the Fed to raise rates 
anyway, and that's before any of the market risks became priced in. Is everything on the table? Everything's always on the table. So that that isn't necessarily a new thing, but on a day where the wage inflation was at 3.2%, it accelerated from last month, it's the highest since April 2009, you've got a lot of wage inflation, that's a bit of a concern. You couldn't have a better day for... Um, you know, for folks who are bearish the dollar, for folks who are worried about the economy, than to have uh, the, the Fed chairman and the past two chairs uh, talking about, you know, potentially not being all that hawkish and talking about a pretty rosy yeah. outlook. Well, you know, Jason, one, one big question of the day, in my opinion, and one that's going to be gnawing at a lot of market participants going forward is, why is it that this economy is so strong and people are saying that the U.S. can continue going it alone even as the rest of the world slows? Why is it that uh, market participants react so strongly at the suggestion of a tightening Fed? If the U.S. economy was this strong, shouldn't it be able to withstand stand uh, a sort of normalization of Fed policy? Well, and it, it should, right, in theory. But the, the question is, you know, that there are, there are real issues here that you see interest rates going up, housing slows, autos slow, business investment slows, equipment's going to slow. Those kinds of things slowing will will drastically reduce the, the, the growth pace. But, you know, look, even if you look at the Fed Fed's own forecast, they see the unemployment rate going up from here. And the only way it goes up is if growth slows. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think this is you know, part of the cycle as it is. Should it be able to handle more? Maybe. But right now, they don't know. You know, this is always sort of a an experiment uh, in situ where we don't really know what's going to happen. And they're kind of testing things along the way. Jason Schenker, uh, Ben Bernanke, former chair of the Federal Reserve, said uh, that long-term Low interest rates, low long-term interest rates around the world since the financial crisis have made the job of central banking more difficult. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things around this, right? I mean, you know, look, there were folks who'd made managing director at some of the, the world's biggest investment banks who had, at the time where they made MD, had never seen a Fed rate hike, had never seen interest rates above zero. So what happens is, and this ties into your first point about you know, mixing financial market understanding with macroeconomic theory, what happens if you have practitioners who've never seen a recession, who've never seen a downturn, who've never seen interest rate hikes? It increases uncertainty because decision makers in funds and in corporations are really going to be looking at their, their first chance of these things. So that introduces uncertainty and risk in terms of actual corporate actions, capital allocations, and uh, and other dynamics within financial markets and the economy. Right now, I just want to bring you up to speed because we are seeing a very big rally in U.S. equity markets. The Nasdaq is up 3.7%. 10-year Treasury yields are experiencing their biggest sell-off by at least one measure in at least a year. Uh, So, Jason, I'm just wondering, going forward here, what do we need to see to sustain this rally in risk assets and sort of the, uh, uh, the pain that we're seeing in the safe bond? Well, I think the most important thing from a technical standpoint in the equity markets for the last five years has been the 120-day moving average. We're well below that on the NASDAQ and the Dow. If we were to go back above that, I think there'd be you know, a lot more room above. But right now, we're still in a, in a zone that's 
reflecting a lot of pressure, uncertainty, and risk. I think as we look forward at the data, housing data is going to be important. Auto data is going to be important. Uh, and business investment, we're going to watch that line item in the next couple of GDP reports. I think that's going to be really, really important because there's a lot of risk there. As you see higher interest rates, I think companies might have pulled forward a lot of their purchases into 2018, present some downside risk to those sectors in 2019. Ben Bernanke said that expansions don't die of old age, that they get murdered. Do you agree? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it, it might be more that they die unexpectedly, right? And, and, and Bernanke had, and, and Paul, I think, too, it had referenced sort of what the expectations were, uh, you know, before the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, here we are, it, 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 you know, 10 years plus later. I think that it comes as a surprise to many when the things go bad, they tend to go bad a lot more quickly than people anticipate. And so it doesn't die of old age. It sort of ends swiftly once the smart money knows that the party's over. Thanks very much for being with us. Jason Schenker is the president of Prestige Economics. He is also the chairman of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor based in Austin, Texas. And you can follow Jason and his work on Twitter at Prestige Econ. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. It is the 14th day of the partial government shutdown in the United States. Today, uh, there is going to be a meeting of Democrats and Republicans, including President Trump, to try to breach the impasse and get government open again. Here to tell us about how realistic this is, is Marty Shanker, Chief Content Officer uh, for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Marty, how hopeful are you that we're going to get a resolution today? Well, hopeful... Uh, we are not going to get a resolution today. And I just, uh, you know, as a journalist, this is a great story moving forward. But as for the people affected, it's not pleasant at all. <clears throat> but uh, I do not think there's any chance of this getting settled. Why, so. why is this a great story as a journalist, considering all of the other sort of back and forth and gridlock that sort of has gone on over the number of years in the past? Well, we had this little thing called the midterm elections and leading up to that, uh, was a fascinating story. And this ex- essentially extends that narrative past the midterms themselves, because this is the first time Donald Trump is having to confront a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi. And I think it is going to color how that relationship moves on for the rest of uh, Donald Trump's term. Another thing that might color the relationship is that while federal workers, at least those that have not been deemed essential, those federal workers are not being paid. And will not be paid. Yes. Cabinet secretaries, deputy secretaries, and top administrators, even Vice President Mike Pence, they might get an annual increase of $10,000 
a year. That's not going to look so great because this has to do with the caps on spending for federal workers. Without the legislation going into effect, those caps are removed and these pay increases will go forward. Right. Uh, Look, uh, the optics of this shutdown are not great. uh, And and. And I really do think they're not great for the Democrats as well as the Republicans. Um, You know, once you get outside of the news centers on the coasts in the middle of America, this just reinforces the whole idea that governments don't, the government doesn't work for them and is only part of, uh, you know, uh, the state of affairs where everything is politics and nothing is about creating solutions. So... I don't think it's great for either side. I do think it's true that the Geo- that President Trump and the GOP will get the majority of the blame, but, you know, so what? I mean, for 800,000 people who are not getting paid, it doesn't matter who's to blame. They can't well, make car payments. They can't make mortgage well, payments. But it right. goes beyond just those people, because yesterday, Kevin Hassett, uh, the chief economic advisor to President Trump, said at the White House, he told reporters uh, that the ongoing partial government shutdown would cut uh, economic output in the nation by about 0.1% every two weeks. After a while, this is going to have a real drag, right? That is correct. Uh, and there are all these ancillary businesses that uh, rely on these people who are not spending money that they don't have. There's contracts that are not going to be executed. And frankly, uncertainty breeds uh, indecision, and companies are going to have second thoughts about doing anything while this shutdown extends longer and longer. So it could have an even more dramatic impact the longer it goes. And you know, looking at this job number, that's not going to continue if we have an economic slowdown. The other uh, unintended effect is you have closures of many federal facilities. For example, the park system in many places, not being cleaned up, not being taken care of. Right. It also affects the small and mid-sized businesses that count on people making visits to those locations in order to survive. That's right. And there are other things about, uh, you know, how companies get visas processed, passports issued. Um, There are all kinds of ways in which this slowdown will, little by little, have an impact on people's lives. The... I guess the silver lining to that is as those things trickle down to Main Street, there is more political pressure on getting this solved. But right now, this has become a Nancy Pelosi versus Donald Trump issue, and neither side is going to give in. Well, I want to talk about exactly that uh, before the effects trickle down. Let's talk about who has the leverage here. The balance of leverage as these two uh, go into the negotiating room. Who has a better position right now? Well, I don't think there's any question that the leverage uh, sides with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. They have passed two separate bills that would reopen the government, uh, that would fund Homeland Security without a wall uh, for a month while they negotiated on that issue. But it would essentially reopen the government. So it's, you know, it's this rather fascinating point where uh, Mitch McConnell has basically ceded the Senate to the president. He's not going to put it to a vote unless the president's going to sign what he, what, the, what the Senate passes. So um, 
It is definitely the Democrats who have the advantage here. Can I ask you a question? How popular is the wall? Among Americans, the latest polling shows that most uh, a, major, uh, a majority of Americans don't support the wall, and they certainly don't support a shutdown on that issue. Um, but I think it's really gotten beyond whether they support a wall or not. It's a question of trust, and the Democrats have basically said that uh, they don't trust Donald Trump to execute any kind of na- uh, border security based on a campaign promise rather than what experts in his own administration say is an effective border security plan. Well, I guess this is just going to continue until we see some end. We expect see you on Monday. Some, yeah, well, we hope so, yeah. I mean, I think the president is government shut down, not us shut down. Right. <laughs> no, we're we're not shutting down. Just just a, just a point to this has become a slanging match, hasn't it? It's 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 kind of taken on a personal tone, right? With uh, Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, minority leader in in the Senate, saying that President Trump is a terrible negotiator. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody is uh, being particularly. Um, shy about taking advantage of personal attacks in the age of Donald Trump, although Nancy Pelosi has made it clear she wants people they disagree with, they want to be civil with them. We'll see whether that continues as this slowdown, uh, shutdown continues. Thanks very much, as always. Marty Schenker, Chief Content Officer for Bloomberg. Our focus on municipals is brought to you by Build America Mutual. BAM, Green Star Bonds finance projects that protect and restore the environment with more renewable energy and efficient transportation and buildings. Visit buildamerica.com slash Green Star. BAM, Building America. Time to bring in Joe Mysack, editor for the Bloomberg Brief for Municipal Markets. He joins us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Joe Mysack, let's begin with a look at where investors are putting their money. They are pouring money into municipal bond exchange traded funds. What has changed? Well, uh, exchange traded funds are easier, a little more transparent, a little less in fees than mutual funds. And there are relatively recent entry into the municipal market. And it turns out, and this was a, a, a kind of a, a funny thing, Alan Shankle of Janney Montgomery brought this up the other day. And he said, take a look. I know we just started getting inflows back into mutual funds, but over the last several weeks, uh, we've got more than $600 million have been flowing into muni exchange traded funds. Well, but is this just an issue of transferring out of mutual funds into ETFs, or is this a, a sort of vote of confidence on this particular market by retail investors? I think it's the latter, Lisa. A very good point there. It's not because you don't see you know, a one-to-one. It's not just transferring out. It's, hey, let's look at this new product. And I think the ETF families are getting a little bit more... Uh, uh, savvy about how they pitch and you know it's one of those things a 
product like this takes some time to get going, so, especially because you have mutual funds and people's habits are so entrenched. So I'm wondering why why now? I mean, is it just basically the bid for bonds that we've seen generally until today uh, permeate throughout the markets that's driven this? Or is it some hope for an infrastructure spending plan? Because Nancy Pelosi, who is uh, sworn in as the Speaker of the House yesterday, indicated that they were going to uh, move for a bipartisan infrastructure bill, which could potentially help. Well, uh there's that. But I uh, I really think it's more of the uh, haven investment. You know, the stock market got so beat up over the last, what, the last quarter uh, that, you know, people have been looking at municipal bonds, municipal ETFs, mutual funds, and, you know, maybe mutual funds, eh, it's not as sexy as it was. Hey, this ETF thing, let's, let's give this a whirl. And it's munis, which are renowned as your safe investment. Well, and just looking at the yields that are available on some specific states, California, 2.31%, New York, 2.16%, Illinois, well, that's a separate case, but we've seen those yields move lower. Oh, man. Oh, the, you know, the, the, you would... You have the January effect taking place, yes. you know, coming up here. But uh, yeah, we've, again, it's because of, you know, bond market, safe haven. Munis, safe haven. And the yields have been going down. Plus, the last two weeks, the calendar uh, in municipals has been dead. Nothing there. Uh, the next week, we have the first deals being priced in the new year. Pretty good week, too. I think it's about $8 billion. All right, so let's talk about yield. Let's talk about where you can get it. You wrote a column looking at uh, yields that can be found in smaller liberal arts colleges. What took you there? Oh, you know, I, I other than a complicated at, admissions at, process. At the end of of the year, I was looking at the calendar and I said, okay, what haven't I written about most recently? And I saw there was an issue for Randolph College, and I'd never heard of that. And there was an issue for Hampton Sydney College, and there was also a big issue for Tufts. And as we talked about in the last uh, conversation of last year, Georgetown is selling taxable bonds, century bonds. So I said, gee, you know, let me take a look at those uh, colleges. And, you know, the more you, you look into these official statements, and it just describes a completely different world for you. And it just got so interesting that I finally did a column just focused on Randolph and uh, Hampton, Sydney, which are both in Virginia. And, uh, you know, you talk about yield. On some of those maturities, you're picking up more, you're getting more than 4%, which, as Pim pointed out before, what are we seeing now in the market? 2.21% for Virginia uh, 10 years. For We're the seeing the twos. Triple A's, yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, this is a nice pickup. Now, these there are- There are risks, though. Are, Tell us are, about the risks. Look, these these are lower rated. One is rated A. I think one is rated triple B+. Plus. Uh, they're very small. You're talking about- uh, you know, a total uh, total uh, enrollment of you know six hundred to a thousand. Uh, so they're they're much smaller, and you know schools have been under pressure the last several years. As and I remember looking at in the uh, the Randolph College issue, it had this thing called tuition reset, where the uh, the school has been asked by the board to take a look at rolling back tuition, which, you know, if you're a parent, yeah. you know it grows 3 4 5% a year. And uh, I, I, that was the first time I saw, wow, 
tuition reset. Yeah. Randolph is also selling its uh, selling its horses, closing down its equestrian program. Yeah, a lot of interesting things, you know, fascinating. But but you know, at the same time, these smaller schools they have very devoted alumni. Yeah. and they have endowments. Joe Mysack, thank you so much for being with us. Joe Mysack is the editor of the Bloomberg Brief, focused on the municipal bond market for us here at Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.